I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This is episode two in our mini-series on media and culture, exploring the ways in which media intersects with geopolitics and global affairs. We're thrilled to have Helen Zhang on the podcast with us today. Helen is the co-founder of Intrigue Media, a media tech company covering global issues at the intersection of geopolitics, tech, and business. She's also a global public policy manager at Google and a former diplomat. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Zoe and Grant. Helen, how did you first become interested in foreign policy, and at what point did that begin to intersect with an interest in media? So I was actually born in China, and I grew up in communist China in the 80s, you know, under the one-child policy. So for me, sort of the migration to Australia was always kind of cased in this really interesting kind of context because my dad actually was able to stay in Australia as a political asylum seeker after Tiananmen Square. And so this element of Australia's place in the world and China's place in the world had always been really interesting to me. So I guess initially as a kid, I was really fascinated with the rest of the world in addition to China and Australia and seeing how I can contribute to it. So as a funny aside, I remember when I was about 15, I had really wanted to be a diplomat, but didn't know how to get there. And so I called the front desk of the Foreign Affairs Ministry and asked the receptionist, hey, I'd like to have a job there. How can I get to become a diplomat? And I remember this woman very kindly said to me, well, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm I'm 15. And she said, well, firstly, you need to finish school. So that's a first. And, you know, from there, I think I sort of eventually learned how to um, get into the foreign policy world. But, you know, going to your question, Zoe, about the intersection of foreign policy and media, I think I only really became very interested. I mean, I was interested in both foreign policy and media as two separate entities, as two separate pillars. But I think I became more interested in it after my time studying at the Harvard Kennedy School. And while I was there, I did a podcast on Xi Jinping and sort of his story with um, Jane Perlez from the New York Times. And it was a really interesting experience that sort of showcased or allowed me to sort of learn how you can storytell geopolitics and make it more digestible to a wider audience through media, if done well, like what you guys are doing with this podcast. And so after leaving grad school, my co-founder, John Fowler, and I decided that, you know, there's probably a market here for people who want to understand more about geopolitics but aren't able to sort of find it in mainstream media. So that's sort of where the exploration started with Intrigue Media and where, you know, the path that led me down to where we are today. I want to hear more about this podcast you mentioned about Xi Jinping. What was the motivation for it and and what were some of the key insights that, that came out of that work? Sure. So it was really, you know, Jane Polis's project. She was at the Kennedy School as a Schoenstein Center Fellow. And it was the, I think when she, when we were there, it was about 10 years after she had left as bureau chief in Beijing. Uh, do it caught me of that. I think it's about 10 years or it could have been less, but some time had passed. And I think we wanted to understand the motivations of Xi Jinping and his story through one podcast and be able to explain that in a very digestible podcast format for people who might not have the time or interest to kind of read up on Xi Jinping and his life. 
but it was before, you know, the the party congress of last year and a lot of the big changes that then happened in Chinese politics. And he's, you know, I guess, cementing his place in both Chinese CCP history, but then also just the future of China. So that was what was really driving the intent of the podcast. I don't know if it sort of got commercial acclaim <laughs> in the same way that sort of subsequent podcast in that similar category like The Prince by The Economist and by Su Lin Wong um, did. But I really do think that it, something like that is very popular for people who want to understand a very deep subject matter but may not have the time to be able to do so. What surprised you about making that podcast, both about the, the media function of it, like distilling the information, but also the story itself? Did you find something about Xi Jinping that you were like, Ah, dude really loved corn in Iowa or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he was obsessed with the uh, with the NBA for a little while, right? I think what really surprised me was actually how much work goes into a podcast. And of course, you guys don't need me to tell him this twice. But Jeb Sharp, who was former NPR, was also another producer on the podcast. And the storytelling techniques that she was able to sort of show. And what I learned from was that was really what differentiates the average podcast from like the really interesting and compelling and engaging ones, right? So you don't necessarily tell a linear story for something like Xi Jinping's life. We started at the beginning with Jane's career when she was in China in the 60s and then went into sort of interweaving into the contemporary times and then went back into some Chinese politics in 2010s. And then he's meeting with sort of various world leaders but having that sort of non-linear timeline actually was really great for storytelling because it kind of keeps the readers engaged. So that's, I think, the big surprise is how long it takes and how intentional we have to be to produce a podcast that's worth listening to. And I, I want to go back because at the beginning of your remarks, you said you grew up in 1980s China, which is a very different place than 1980s, 90s, Australia, how did growing up in China and having Chinese parents make you think about the situation there? And then maybe how did that come into conflict with the way Australia views China? Right. Such a, such a great question, Grant, and quite a big question. So I think I'll break it down into the first part. So I think growing up in the 80s in China, I mean, it was the time when we still had food coupons, you know, to go and get certain allocations and rations of protein or vegetables. And even though it was, I think, obviously, economically a lot less developed than today, I had a very happy childhood from what I could rem remember. And one of my fondest childhood memories actually was when McDonald's opened up in my hometown. And I come from sort of southeast China, where the province of Fujian, which is directly opposite Taiwan, and somewhere where I think, you know, for, because of its strategic location, had been very underdeveloped for a long period of time. And so it was one of the last places, I think, to sort of see the sort of ha along the East Coast anyway, that had the commercial traction and a commercial market to be able to attract something like McDonald's. So when McDonald's opened, uh, gosh, I remember the entire city basically lined up to try and get to McDonald's. People were grabbing their McDonald's wrapper and keeping that as a souvenir. And I grabbed one of the McDonald's burger rings. Is that what they're called? Like the sort of cardboards that sort of held around the hamburgers and had it as a little crown as a souvenir. But obviously <laughs> that was a very particular moment in time. And then fast forward to sort of coming to Australia, I think 
having had that experience in China growing up for the first seven years of my life made me realize how just extraordinarily wonderful life was in Australia. When I first moved to Australia, I went through a really serious addiction phase of eating exclusively cake and drinking exclusively chocolate milk. My parents had to intervene after a certain period of time because obviously it was not good for me. So it was a sort of like an abundance that I don't think I had really was prepared for before I came to Australia. Of course, I wasn't really able to grapple with how significant the geopolitical shift was at the time. But, you know, I think China was still very much a different entity to what it is today. And seeing it from my parents' perspective was never necessarily, you know, we never had political conversations at home. But I think as I grew older and, you know, went into the Australian foreign ministry, that piece of the sort of relationship became much more prominent in my thinking in terms of where China's stance and worldview was versus where Australia is and the rest of the Five Eyes countries and the Western, you know, quote unquote, Western world was. And I have to say that, you know, in recent years, I think as the West and China's relationship has deteriorated, it's given me pause as a sort of Chinese Australian or Chinese diaspora being overseas in terms of where our role fits within the broader US-China struggles. Because, you know, I think a lot of Chinese diaspora are weaponized by the CCP or they're targeted by their sort of local country as an agent of the CCP. And so it's very hard to sort of tread that line and um, become both aware of identity sometimes. Okay, I want to dig in there a little bit more and and to fill in gaps maybe for people who don't know your whole bio, you wanted to be a diplomat at age 15 and then you became one, right? So tell us a little bit about the work that you were doing at the Australian Foreign Ministry and then would love to hear more about, about your comments just now regarding the ways in which citizens of the Chinese diaspora end up be, you know, becoming weaponized by the CCP and what that looked like for you on the diplomatic side of things. So my time at the foreign ministry, I had a really wonderful run, actually, and everyone has a very different kind of time, different sort of career that they can have at the ministry. My, when I started, I rotated through our consular teams, our bilateral teams, and worked on trade negotiations with North Asia for Australia, and then worked on UN Security Council, beard, I think, back in 2012 and the UN multilateral system, and then worked on some bilateral desks, including Indonesia, Timor, and the Korean Peninsula. And then my first posting was actually to Tel Aviv in Israel, where I covered both political as well as economic issues, but mainly focused on the region. So what that looked like at the time was the Iran nuclear deal before it got kiboshed, and then the Syria civil war, as well as ISIS and some other regional movements in the Middle East from Israel's perspective, and then looking at how Australia's interests would intersect there. And then I went on to Hong Kong, where I covered initially what was meant to be an economic file on trade and sort of helping with our free trade agreement, which Australia had just signed with Hong Kong. But then, of course, with the protests that happened under the national security laws, I ended up covering a little bit more of that during my time there. So switching gears a little bit, um, a couple of years ago, you founded International Intrigue. Would love to hear a little bit more about what the motivation was for starting it and whether there was something lacking in the foreign policy, foreign affairs media landscape that you were trying to fill in creating it. Sure. 
So starting in trade media, I'd like to say would have happened regardless of the pandemic, but I can't say that. I think largely it was sometimes, you know, you just need that external spark of an event to, to keep, kick it off. Uh, so my co-founder and I were both foreign service officers from for Australia, and um, that's where we had met. And after our first couple of postings, we had both gone on to do graduate school. So he went to London Business School and I was at the Harvard Kennedy School. And throughout that time, for, for John more than me, actually, he had noticed that a lot of his classmates who would be future Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 company C-suites were really not very engaged in what was going on geopolitically and couldn't really identify the key drivers of global affairs and geopolitics, which, of course, for us foreign policy nerds coming from the foreign ministry was astounding, right, that these people would be running Fortune 50 companies and there wasn't an, a sufficient sort of brief to help them understand the lay of the lay of the land. And so driven partly by that and driven by also the fact that we thought a lot of policy briefings and mainstream media coverage of geopolitics is quite dry, we wanted to create something that had an expert, but it was an expert but irreverent take on global affairs issues that could sort of be the morning brew of geopolitics or be like the athletic but for geopolitics. And so that's how we sort of initially started it with a substack that was that had a weekly cadence. And then that grew to a point where we were able to attract enough sort of investors for friends and family around to turn it into a daily cadence. And sort of since then, which was in end of 2021, it's now grown onto, you know, over 20,000 subscribers. Um, and we're developing more and more products within that range. So I think it's really hitting, you know, going to your point, Zoe, of, yes, I think there is something missing in mainstream media and perhaps sort of traditional coverage of geopolitical news that firstly is entertaining to read. Secondly, is strikes a tone that I think is, um, is relevant and engaging for our readers. And thirdly, is entertaining as well. So that's what we're striving for. Check back in to see how that's going in a few, few years. Who do you think is the audience for this? Who are you trying to speak to? And what do you think your metrics of success are moving forward? We're not writing for foreign policy experts per se. I think that's definitely not our only and our target demographic. Our target sort of audience is for someone who's a young professional who might be interested in foreign policy, but don't have the time or don't have sort of come across it in their daily work or their function but are still very interested in finding out about what's going on around the world from sort of balanced coverage that is covering the world rather than just the US or Europe or other parts of the English-speaking world. So that's our sort of audience. We've A lot of our readers are actually Gen Z millennials or even older as well. We have a lot of C-suite execs as well who subscribe. And I think for these readers, it's really just to get a really great geopolitical lay of the land and see the global news um, of the day with some analysis from practitioners of foreign policy to help them differentiate what is really important and what, you know, might not really be in the headlines in a week or so. And we tend to identify long-term trends as well as things that are coming out from parts of the world that are less reported about and less covered in um, other parts of the world. In terms of metrics of success, you know, we are always going to keep international entry, which is our first product, free. We want to make it accessible, and I think that's part of our mission, but it's also for um, our sort of front-of-house product. 
that will then attract readers to other products within the B2C, like business to consumer range, as well as the B2B range. So we really want to communi- create like a community of people who are interested in foreign policy, interested in learning more about the world and how it impacts them in whatever function or business that they do or what industry they're in. As someone who also works in foreign policy media, I'd be interested in hearing how you think about the distribution layer for media. Like obviously Substack is kind of a direct to customer way of promoting your work, but there's all the social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all that good stuff. How do you think that the distribution channel changes either how you craft the story in your writing or what you cover? I think the first thing that intrigue is really wanted to grasp is that we want to own our distribution list, right? We don't want to rely on a third party like social media platforms to sort of be a metric of how many followers we have or how many readers that we're, re- you know, writing to. And so because of that, we decided to go with an email newsletter so we can sort of speak directly to our readers and have a layer of authenticity and sort of direct kind of writer to reader engagement that is sometimes lacking when you go through other platforms and distribution channels. Of course, that was a lot of, you know, iteration and a longer process to sort of finesse the final product and we're still always iterating. But I think you have to own your distribution lists in order to be able to stay true to your product and be able to develop the voice for your product and ensure that you build that trust between what you write and then your, your readers and then it becomes a community of people who are interested and intrigued. How do you think about like measurement of success in this domain? You know, I think there's obviously a question of like, okay, how many readers or listeners or how like how many people are consuming this content? But like, you know, I think there's other ways potentially of thinking about what it means to be successful as a content producer or content distributor, you know, how ideas are are sort of flowing through the ecosystem, et cetera. Very hard to measure, of course. But like, I guess, how do you think about success? For Intrigue Media, I think we think of success as creating a one-stop shop sort of community and platform for foreign policy practitioners as sort of like foreign service as a service, if you will. And I know that sounds suitably vague, so I will explain that. There are a lot of actually really interesting experts out there on Twitter and Substack who are writing and don't necessarily have the sort of readership or the exposure to a lot of eyeballs and we're trying to sort of bring them under the umbrella of intrigue media eventually so that we can create a a sort of community and a brand of foreign policy experts who might be able to comment and sort of you know i think decentralize in some ways but then rebundling them into a sort of foreign policy platform that has a more grassroots and diverse range of voices you know, I understand that sounds like a very abstract way of measuring success, but I think that is a sort of uh, North Star to which where intrigue is working to. And then in terms of how we measure that in the interim is, of course, you know, metrics of growth and then metrics of ads, metrics of kind of the commercial side of things as well. Oftentimes, foreign policy media gets wrapped up in a either a U.S. specific view, because that's who the consumers are, or in the sort of 
big shiny issue of the day. So whether that be Ukraine or China, how do you think about the rest of the world? So Latin America obviously has a bunch of stuff going on. Peru is obviously in a bit of a crisis, as we discussed on our last pod. Africa, there's so much going on, but there's so little coverage of it. How do you think about what to pick, why to pick, what to highlight, all that good stuff? So the newsletter itself covers different regions and we have a focus on different parts of the region so that we can highlight a lot of stories that come out of these different regions and also different types of stories that come out of these uh, different regions. Like, for example, Africa, often all you hear about is the Sahels and the conflict that's going on there and worsening. But there's actually a lot of really interesting stories in the uh, climate change sustainability space, as well as, you know, just the sheer number of well, sheer amount of like economic growth that is going to happen in the African continent in the coming years. So we really try and pick out the kind of what we call like, not the good news stories, but sort of the optimistically, you know, the, the optic, what do we call it? I think like the optimistic realist kind of stories of what's happening on the ground and also where the trend is heading and trying to sort of get readers to think about things that are beyond the daily news cycle. And then I think an, another region that, you know, we, you've mentioned Latin America, but we also try and cover the Indo-Pacific, which I think by that term itself is a very, very large area. But, you know, the Pacific Islands, for example, is a really, really key area where geostrategically is going to be very important in the next five to 10 years. And we've seen China and US duke it out there already with Australia having some influence in shaping how things will go. So we really try and uh, surface those kind of stories that perhaps like a US and EU audience wouldn't normally read or sort of be sort of fed, I guess, be push these stories to. But we try and highlight those and try and think about those other English-speaking countries out there who might be interested in other stories outside of, you know, the North American continent and Europe. Out of curiosity, where do you get your own news? Like when you're looking to read good writing or reporting on geopolitics and foreign policy, aside from uh, intrigue media, which obviously is probably a great source, like where do you where do you go? I think for, you know, headlines, I actually get an RSS feed of a lot of the mainstream outlets, which I know I have just uh, had words about, you know, I do try and get the sort of US as well as a UK and European angles. And also Australian news, because I think the Australian Singapore, sort of that that kind of time zone just covers a lot of different areas and countries and different focus points. And then I try and also get some news from that would focus on sort of South Asia as well, because I think that that will really be an important area for growth going forward. But really, it's I don't go to one specific feed. I know people who sort of wake up and like check the BBC or check the New York Times, but I tend to try not to um, exclusively do that. And honestly, the last little while, a lot of my news has been very tech focused. So, I, so I've been very read up on a lot of the internet related news and the tech policy related news that um, comes from a sort of internal feeder that I read as well. So I do a morning podcast that aggregates news from foreign policy outlets kind of all over the place or or the the mainstream news from a lot of locations. One of the things that has shocked and frustrated me about that is how much even when you're trying to look for news from different areas, it's mostly coming from the AP and Reuters or the AP, Reuters, AFP, 
and then they will slap their logo on it or their name on it because they move the words around a little bit. How do you think about that as someone who also is a layer on top of sort of hard journalism? Like you guys don't have people in every country going and like like shaking down sources. How do you think about the challenge of sort of money seeping out of local journalism for covering areas that you don't know as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really great question, Grant. I think we've been very conscious about curating stories. And as you say, we're not journalists. Intrigue media are not journalists. We don't report on stories, but we curate stories and then sort of provide our analysis. So it's a, it's been a very conscious process and we spent a lot of time fine-tuning the sources of where we get the stories from. And so we have RSS feeds to Twitter accounts of prominent kind of local reporters or people who are experts in certain fields that may not get quoted in these AFP, AFP sort of stories and try and surface their viewpoints. But you're right, it's, it's, it's not easy. I think it's the default and um, the, the default option is to sort of read into stories that are, have come from these mainstream outlets because they have the resources to be, to be putting boots on the ground. Um, but I think generally, if I may, you know, offer my point on the, the broadcast or the media industry writ large is that there's a lot of, you know, Semaphore, for example, has been really trying to change the game there in terms of trying to provide um, local, quote unquote, what formerly used to call foreign correspondents to provide more depth of coverage. But that comes from a lot of money, right? They've, they've had to throw a lot of capital behind that endeavor and, you know, remains to be seen how that will go. Um, so I think the whole model of of for profit media industry is due for a disruption in the next few years. It'll be interesting to see where where things go. So in your day job, you work in tech, and so I, you know, I would love to hear from you your perspective on the ways in which tech companies have become more deliberate about managing their public image. And their sort of and their reach, right? You know, sometimes people even talk about this as sort of a, a form of private sector tech diplomacy. Where do you like? What what's your perspective on that? Where does this figure into the larger landscape of of geopolitical players? So I think the short answer to that, right? And this is really what drove me to go into tech was to learn more about tech policy is that tech has a huge role to play in international relations and global affairs writ large. But I don't think that the current sort of institutional frameworks and the mechanisms that have been set up post-World War II cater for, for the role of tech companies, even though tech and anything adjacent to tech, whether that's hardware, whether that's competition, whether it's sort of content and privacy issues um, or the future of the internet, there's not really anything that's regulating that. And so for, I think it's a good thing that tech companies are engaging more with global institutions and trying to sort of weigh in on how the future of the internet should look. And I know that that's a really, really big ecosystem there to, to tap into, but at least say, you know, in terms of the freedom of the internet and what we've seen at the International Telecommunications Union and what they governed this last year, it's been really important to have elected a secretary general from the United States whose agenda was championing for a free and open and interoperable internet. 
I think, you know, the, the, the state of the world is such that that is changing very quickly. Internet fragmentation is not new, but it's accelerating. And as much as it's both a sort of survival or a sort of a business imperative for tech to be involved in that conversation, it is also a, a very important one for them to weigh in our policy um, directions and sort of standards so that there is an internet that, you know, the internet continues to be as free and open as possible for countries and for users. How do you think tech companies or even just broadly large international firms think about geopolitical challenges differently than governments do? I mean, for nat- I mean, let's put it this way, right? I think for nation states, they are actual players in this game, right? Whereas I think tech, they're still on the sidelines, but they really should be in the game. And for a lot of nation states, they have the ability to change the rules or have sort of an input on how the game should be played. And they have a lot at stake. But for, for big tech, a lot of their considerations largely, you know, let's be real, are driven by profit margin, right? And how big a market is, what their uh, opportunities are for entering that market. And geopolitics for them, I think, in some ways is a cost center rather than the core business. For governments, you know, it's impossible not to think about geopolitics because that is the business of, you know, international relations, right? And government to government and state to state relations. Whereas for, for tech firms and for big multinational companies, whether rightly or wrongly, I think they, a lot of them still see geopolitics and geopolitical risk as a cost center. That may be changing slowly because I think we've seen in the last year, right, more has changed in 2022 than the world had seen in the last 30 years. And so with supply chain issues, with COVID, with sort of the way that the world is heading right now with um, economically, politically, I really think that multinational companies ought to, and I don't know if you will, but they, they may be paying more attention to geopolitics as a core business aspect of core business rather than just a cost center. With that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something political or cultural that we're talking about in the news. Zoe, what are you following this week? I am following uh, a, a sort of unfolding story from a couple months ago, but is, is gaining some steam, which is that it looks like the primary schedule for the presidential election for the Democrats is going to shift the order of states. This has been talked about for a long time, but as of fairly recently, the DNC officially voted to elevate South Carolina to the front of the schedule ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire. And the thinking is really that South Carolina, in many ways, is a much more representative state than Iowa and New Hampshire, that that states like Iowa and New Hampshire have had sort of an outsized influence on the outcome of primaries because they tend to show a certain candidate gaining momentum in a way that has, you know, really powerful knock-on effects. So this proposed new calendar is a real departure from you know, the sort of status quo of how at least Democrats go about choosing a nominee. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out next year. As a proud South Carolinian and someone who worked in South Carolina on the 2019 presidential cycle, I have two cheers for moving South Carolina to the front. 
I just wanted to recommend if you have HBO Max that you go and watch The Last of Us, which is a new zombie dystopian show. Of course, when you hear zombie dystopia, you think of immediately The Walking Dead. This is not The Walking Dead. It is less focused on zombies and more focused on the people, which is someone who really cares about sci-fi and fantasy. I think that's the, the core of what the genre does best, which is use a outlandish situation to tell us something about humans and to dig into what makes us us and how, regardless of the situation, the human impulse and the way humans work together is always going to be core. So I'd highly recommend it. People are arguing that episode three, long, long time, is one of the best in television this year. So I would, again, highly recommend you go watch The Last of Us and then go play the uh, video game if you have some time on your hands. Helen, what are you following this week? I mean, just when I thought that HBO had peaked with White Lotus this year, that's so fantastic. I'm watching, you know, the broader tech industry and what all these layoffs actually mean and say about tech issues writ large. So what do I mean by that? I think, you know, obviously everyone's seen the news cycle with a lot of tech layoffs across the board in sort of the fangs or mangs, <laughs> in addition to sort of smaller tech firms as well. I don't think this is necessarily a reflection of the U.S. Um, labor market per se, but I do think that it's sort of a readjustment or sort of course correction, I guess, of the U.S. tech labor market over the last two years during COVID when things had grown exponentially. But then obviously that demand has then shrunk. Now, from my observations, I it's been really interesting to see, you know, growth functions cut. So things like recruitment and then secondly, internal policies cut. So teams that work on internal policies rather than external focused engagement. And then thirdly, and I'll end on this, is things that are not central to AI. And as we've seen in the last little while with ChatGBT, which has really thrown this competition in a whole different league. I'm really interested to see where things go from there and where AI goes uh, for both the consumers as well as for these uh, big tech industry players. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Helen at internationalintrigue.substack.com. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Bing. Bing is excited to announce its integration with OpenAI. First, we're coming for Google, and then Sydney is coming for your spouse. So after you've fallen in love with the world's clingiest chatbot, Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.